Hi there, and welcome to Talking Commodities, the podcast series where leaders in commodities trading, procurement, risk management, and sourcing come to share truly actionable insights based on real-world experiences with the biggest global companies. Talking Commodities is brought to you by the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at the University of Colorado Denver Business School. The first center of its kind, offering educational programs and research focused on commodities, taught by experienced industry experts. Go to business.ucdenver.edu slash commodities to find out more. And Chai, a London technology business who help companies secure more margins, stable prices, and better outcomes. Chai has developed an intuitive web application that provides users with crucial insights and commodities price predictions made by applying artificial intelligence to all of the data that matters, from satellite imagery to freight data. To get access to Chai, go to chaipredict.com. That's C-H-A-I predict.com. Now, over to Stephen Butler, Chief Commercial Officer of Chai, and Tom Brady, Executive Director of the JPMCC, for this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to another podcast edition of Talking Commodities. Today, we are very pleased to be joined by Bob Greer, a longtime product manager at PIMCO, an author of a book entitled Intelligent Commodity Indexing. And in the 1970s, Bob was pivotal in creating the world's first investable commodity index. Currently, Bob is an active commodity consultant and also happens to be a scholar in residence with the JP Morgan Center for Commodities. Bob, thank you so much for taking your time to speak to us today. My pleasure. I always uh, enjoy speaking about one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Excellent. So with such a long and distinguished career in commodities and in commodities investing, my first questions are, A, what's your background story? How did you get into the industry in the first place? And B, where did the inspiration come for structuring a commodities index? Thanks for asking that, Steve. I, I will tell you, that the short answer is it was purely by happenstance. I went to uh, graduate business school, had a background in economics, did some computer consulting. And then a fraternity brother asked me to join him in starting a commodity brokerage firm. Uh, My response was, Randy, I don't know anything about commodities. And Randy replied, it's okay. I know how to gather the clients uh, where I am. My partner knows how to trade the markets. All you have to do is run the business. And Bob, you have a Stanford MBA, so you ought to be able to run any business, right? And I was uh, naive enough that I said yes. So that uh, was my entry into the commodity markets. This was in uh, 1973. It was a time when most of the participants in the markets were either speculators or commercial hedgers. It was at a time when we were starting to see uh, you know, strongly rising inflation in the U.S. It was also a time when we were seeing the advent of the first stock index funds. With all of this going on, I looked at the markets a little differently and I said, well, what if we simply had long positions in a range of commodities, commodity futures? What if we took the leverage out of the positions, which would mean having long only positions and having them fully collateralized? What if we allocated to all the various commodities based on their importance in world trade? And what if we made this a passive 
uh, approach rather than guessing which way the markets were going. Those attributes constitute a commodity index and they constitute the major commodity indexes that we still have today, whether it's the S&P GSCI, the uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index, the Credit Suisse Commodity Benchmark, the CRB and others. But at the time, those were rather novel ideas and not too well accepted by many of the participants in the market, the speculators in particular, when I suggested that you be that you have a passive approach. I completed that research in the late 1970s. I published an article in 1978 in the Journal of Portfolio Management that indeed described the first investable commodity index. And I will say that nobody cared. And it was not until about 15 years later when uh, some of the investment banks started to pick up on the idea of commodities as an asset class, commodity investing, that I came back to those markets and uh, have been involved ever since. Bob, you know, what, what led you to PIMCO? Well, I think we can sort of pick up from that last story. I started at uh, one of the investment banks who wanted me to resurrect my early work and bring to the market a commodity, investable commodity index to compete with the index that Goldman Sachs had come out just a year earlier. I worked at that uh, investment bank. It was actually Daiwa Securities. Uh, Chase bought my index and bought me with it. Chase and uh, we rebranded the product, rebranded again when Chase merged with JP Morgan. And then PIMCO decided that they wanted to offer commodities as an additional investment product and gave me the opportunity to work with them to develop PIMCO's commodity business as well. I'm uh, proud to say that we developed a business that at one time had over $35 billion in assets under management. PIMCO still remains the largest commodity investment manager, although people oddly don't think of PIMCO as a commodity manager just because they also have so much involved in fixed income. But that, again, was kind of happenstance as to how I wound up back on the West Coast with PIMCO. Bob, have you had any key defining lessons or experiences that have been particularly pivotal with your career? I would say one lesson is to be flexible. And certainly that was true in my case. I was doing something uh, you know, entirely different when I got recruited back to Wall Street and was able to then you know, change my direction to get back involved with commodities. I was able to um, respond to PIMCO's request that I join them. So yeah, flexibility would be a key. And probably the other item that I've um, learned in my career, really having nothing to do with commodities, but it would apply more broadly. And the best way to describe that might be to look at the painting behind me. Let me move a little bit so you can see it. This is a Charles Russell print. You, you probably know him as a famous Western artist. And what you have, pardon the glare of the light, you have a cowboy who has shot a mountain goat. The mountain goat is hung up on this cliff. He's scratching his head. He doesn't know how to retrieve that mountain goat. The title of the painting is Meat's Not Meat Till It's in the Pan. And yes, I and many of my friends look at that as indicative of uh, if you're in the transaction business, don't count on things until they actually happen. So yeah, that in truth is a, a 
lesson that I have taken to heart, as have some of my friends who have that painting in their offices now as well. Thank you. Just turning to commodities in more general, Bob, you know, the last year or so has been a complete outlier from everyone's perspective. We've gone from trough to peak, so to speak, uh, more recently. Uh, you know, what do you make of the markets? Is there any particular commodity sector that you find particularly interesting right now? Let me come back to the overall view of the markets. As far as a particular sector, I think that energy continues to be quite interesting for a couple of reasons. First, it is the largest of the commodity markets. It is the most important in the world economy. And therefore, we need to have an understanding and an expectation of what's going on in the energy markets as we look at uh, other commodities and frankly, as we look at other businesses as well. Within energy, I think that one of the things that people will be focusing more on in the next several years is the introduction and growing importance of electricity, of power in the energy markets. And the question is, how will you incorporate power into your commodity exposure? There's some interesting work being done in that area right now. And right now also, there's a lot of talk in general about inflationary pressures. And based on another published work that you did, the Handbook of Inflation Hedging Investments back in the noughties, what do you think is next for the commodities markets? Do you think it is the canary in the coal mine for inflationary views? I think if you look at uh, the statistics, you will see that commodities in the form of an investable commodity index, which is what is important for investors, how can I actually invest in commodities? And most investors, most institutional or individual investors own bushels of corn, for instance, but they can invest in commodity indexes. And you will see that commodity index returns have a higher correlation to inflation than any other investment, higher correlation than timber, higher correlation than uh, tips, a higher correlation than real estate. They are very responsive and they are something that an individual investor can use. I might add that they have an especially high correlation to unexpected inflation. And if you think about it, it's the unexpected inflation that investors should be most concerned about. Expected inflation is already baked into the pricing of equities, bonds, and other asset classes. It's that un unexpected inflation uh, that we have to be worried about, and that is where commodities can be particularly responsive. So yeah. They can be the canary in the coal mine. If you look at the economy more broadly, I think that uh, we will see, not in necessarily in the next six months to a year, but over a longer time frame, that fundamental macroeconomic principles will still apply. And those principles, whether it's the excess monetary stimulus, whether it's the declining growth in the workforce, other things like that will create certainly the risk of inflation. And given that we can't predict with certainty, hedging those risks is something that commodities are particularly good for. 
Uh, you know, how do you keep on top of the markets? You know, do you have any tips for, for folks looking to develop their understanding of the idiosyncrasies uh, of, the, of commodities? I would say a couple of things, Tom. First, it helps if you have a passion for commodities, for real assets, as we often refer to them at PIMCO, for stuff. You're investing in stuff and having a passion for it is important. I remember a, a couple of members of my team that were so excited that we were able to arrange for them to tour the crude oil tank farms in Cushing, Oklahoma, because that was putting them in touch with the real stuff. Having a passion for it is important, but then staying on top of it is going to be a matter of deciding what aspects you want to follow the most. You can't read all the things that are important for all commodities, especially because they're not as uniform as equities, for instance. So being able to filter what's important, decide what direction you want to go in is really key. And we can talk more about that later if you wish. Yeah, I would echo that, uh, you know, touring an operation like a gold mine or a, is just uh, one of the more interesting things I've ever had the opportunities to do. So. What does the price of lithium mean for the future of electric vehicles and iPhones? Learn answers to commodity questions like this with experts from the forefront of research and industry at the J.P. Morgan Center for Commodities at the CU Denver Business School. Join us on Wednesday, July 21st for an online information session on academic courses, non-degree certificates, and professional education offerings. You can also visit our website at business.ucdenver.edu backslash commodities for more information. Bob, I know we've talked uh, with our advisory council about ESG. You know, it's becoming more more to the forefront. You know, what are your views on this? You know, how are the, are the roles of commodity investment managers changing in, in this regard? First, the broader context ESG considerations are important. They're important because of what is happening to the environment, and they're important because of the breakdowns in governance that we have seen in various parts of the economy. How does that relate to commodities, to commodity investing? That depends on whether you look at someone, someone who has a portfolio that is invested in the equities of commodity producers, or if you look at people who are invested in some form of long-only commodity investing. With the former, you have the traditional issues of, of governance and needing to um, be more aware of the environment in the way that these companies operate. In the world of commodity futures investing, the considerations are different. If you think about it, when you own commodity futures, you are not actually producing a metal, you're not producing uh, a grain, you're not producing a cow, you're simply gaining exposure to the price of those commodities. And therefore you're not directly polluting, if you will, the atmosphere. At the same time, you're providing through your activities, more efficient use of capital, for those companies that are involved in those physical markets. Finally, I will say that many investors who have the ESG awareness, they are concerned that 
having positions in these various commodities, they might wonder if they have, if there are environmental concerns, not so much the governance because you're not really involved in governance of a uh, copper producer or of a livestock manager if you're simply exposed to the price of cattle. But there are ways being developed where we can have particularly uh, moves toward carbon neutral commodity exposure that I think will be appeal to a lot of investors who have this, who rightly have this awareness and concern about ESG issues. So just, you know, looking to the future, before we do that, just if you had to articulate or somebody asked you and said, you know, Bob, you started your career in the 70s. What are the biggest changes you've seen? How has the commodities industry changed since you began? What would you say? It has become much more quantitative, much more rigorous. If you go back to the 1970s when I was first in these markets, I don't think you would have seen a high demand for people who had PhDs in physics. In today's environment, you find those very smart, very quantitative people on the trading desks at asset managers and at investment banks. So being much more quantitative is one thing that we have seen. Second thing we've seen is much more awareness of the interaction amongst various commodities, but also the interaction between commodities and other asset classes, such as equities or interest rates. So it has become, in the investing area, much more sophisticated, much more rigorous, much more quantitative, and driven by much better data than what we had 30 years ago. Okay, thank you. I just want to quickly touch on a point that you made a minute ago about, you know, what should be top of people's agenda. And, you know, I think you said there is an aspect of what to follow that's important and knowing what's important, you know. What do you think is top of the agenda from a commodity price risk management perspective right now or you know, as we move forward into 2021? Let me answer in two ways. First, what is important as we look at commodity markets and in this sense, really price movements and so forth. And then secondly, the risk management aspect of it. We didn't quite get to the outlook for commodities, which you had asked me about earlier. And we are reading a lot about another super cycle in commodities driven by, among other things, the loose monetary policy and other factors that I have mentioned. Unlike the previous super cycle we had in early in this century, which was driven by a sort of a uniform increase, global increase in demand, which applied over all commodities, and therefore drove up the prices of the physical commodities, hence the commodity futures. What we have going on now is a sort of a staged super cycle where the driving factor is not a sudden increase in demand as, it, as much as it is a, an inability of supply to meet growing demand. We've had a dearth of capital in the commodity markets for a number of years. Hence, insufficient supply to meet growing demand, and, that, and yet that supply response is different in different markets. So I think that we will see not a uniform increase in prices, but still 
if 10 years from now we look back, we would have said, yeah, overall timing was different, but we did have this uh, another super cycle driven by the, uh, the lack of capital, hence the lack of production capacity. Your second question, what should risk ma managers be concerned about? I would say definitely it's the unknown events, the black swan events that could occur. And those could be driven not so much by natural events, a hurricane, a drought, but we're much more susceptible to changes in governmental policies that can find their way into the commodity markets. We saw that, for instance, with the, uh, the tariffs on uh, some agricultural products in the last few years and how those <clears throat> created distortions in the market. So risk managers, think about the things you don't know about and particularly look to uh, potential scenarios of government actions and think how you can protect yourself. Uh, are there any pitfalls or repeated mistakes that you notice with risk management professionals and, and traders that are relatively new to these markets? I would say that the greatest pitfall I have seen is the lack of perspective. So many people that I got to know in the markets in the later stages of my active career were, well, they were quite a bit younger than I was. And they might look back to the turn of the century, maybe to the 1990s, for their perspective on what could happen, what situations to think about, and for the very quantitative people, all of their calculations on standard deviations, volatility, and so forth. And too many of those people failed to appreciate how the underlying economics that we dealt with in the 60s and 70s and in the 80s, how those also can really affect commodity markets. So that lack of perspective, I would say, is the biggest thing that those uh, risk managers need to be working on. In terms of, uh, you know, best in class hedging programs, what, what sets these apart uh, from, from your perspective? I think the uh, best in class hedgers here, I'm addressing uh, hedging programs that commercials use, and that is they will use rigor, they will be more quantitative, and they will stick with the parameters that they have laid out. Yes, they have to be flexible, but flexible within a planned approach of scenario analysis, not flexible, meaning I look at the headlines and I see something new and I need to change my hedging program. It has to be much more thought out and they need to stick with their plan. Okay, thank you for sharing that. We are coming to the end of the podcast. We're running out of time, unfortunately. So the last area that we tend to target is any advice or key takeaways that you could um, give to, to some of our younger listeners. So if you had to pick a couple of bits of key advice that you could give to people starting out in their career, what, what would they be? I would say, let me give you three items of advice. Number one, which we have talked about, uh, realize that meat's not meat till it's in the pan, and you will find that that applies in many aspects of your life. Number two, and this is a, an area where I fell down in my early career, undergraduate, graduate school, and in my very early years after that. But that is, be aware of the importance of relationships. 
those relationships in your career development will be so very important as you move on, especially in the middle and latter part of your career. It's something that I have um, since learned and have tried to pass on to recruits that we have coming through PIMCO, for instance. And I would say the third thing, I don't know how you do this, but plan on having a very supportive and understanding partner as you go through life. I've been lucky enough to um, have been married to the same woman for over 50 years and we courted for four years before that. And she's put up with a lot as I've gone through this, uh, you know, responding to all the uncertainties and happenstance in my life. So that has become very important for me and is very, would be very rewarding for anyone else uh, who has that same, what I refer to as a checkered past in my career, leading ultimately uh, to what I was able to do at PIMCO and what I'm doing now in my um, active retirement years. Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. And one other question I have just on this is when it comes to interviewing candidates and when you're looking to hire people, is there anything specific that you're looking for, you're trying to target as a skill that, that, that you're trying to identify from these interviews? Yeah. If I'm in the investment world, either in an asset manager or an investment bank, I'll be looking for an understanding of economics, especially macroeconomics, but also if this person is going to be involved in specific commodity markets, an understanding of uh, how microeconomics work as well. I will certainly be looking, as I said before, for that passion for stuff. And I'll be looking for someone who can communicate because that is vitally important. I can't tell you how many times I've seen very complex presentations by people that are super smart and the average person in the room just doesn't understand what they're saying. So you have to be able to relate to whoever it is you're speaking with. And then most importantly, it's got to be a person who shows that they can be a member of a team that they really are interested in the success of the team, as opposed to selfishly looking at uh, just their own success. So, yeah, those are the things that I will be looking for and have looked for in deciding who to invite to uh, join my organization. Thanks, Bob. Last question here. You know, um, any advice you know, for commodity companies or, or uh, investment uh, management firms that uh, to increase the diversity of their workforce? Tom, I would say that that question is no more applicable to commodity companies or investment managers than it is to any other organization. And we see lack of diversity throughout American industry in particular. The advice I would have is open your eyes, take off the blinders, and realize that people with backgrounds, here I'm speaking to management, realize that people with backgrounds different than yours can bring ideas and perspectives to the discussion, to the organization that will make the organization not just a more livable place, but will make the organization a more successful enterprise because they can adapt and respond to those varying ideas that a diverse workforce can bring. Oh, and by the way, it gives you a feeling of being more fair in what you're doing, but it's also for the good of the company and the good of the shareholders if you do that. 
Well, Bob, I uh, can't thank you enough for, for being part of this today. Really appreciate not only your uh, your time today, but uh, just being involved with the Commodity Center as well. It's just great to have you with us. I'd like to reiterate that. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. It's been really, uh, really interesting. It's been a real pleasure and also a pleasure and I'll say an honor to have been a part of or had some small role in the success that you guys are having at the JPMCC. I think that's wonderful to see. So that's it for today. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show as a future guest and you think you've got something contrarian to say, please do get in touch. My email address is jake at chipredict.com. Today's show was written and co-hosted by Stephen Butler and Tom Brady. Special thanks to Erica Hyman of the JP Morgan Center for Commodities at UC Denver and Maria Valentina who produced the podcast. Thanks very much. See you next time.